Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? You're good? You're nodding? You're doing all right? I'm glad to hear that. Glad to have you here. Um, and we are uh, just, uh, as always, we count it a privilege to be able to spend time together, to be able to worship toge- together, to be able to pray together, to be able to celebrate um, uh, friendships and, and, and transitions in, in ministry and stuff like that, all of those things. And we certainly uh, value our time in the Word. Yes, if you've been around, you know that we're in the Gospel of John, and we're actually transitioning from John chapter 6 to John chapter 7 today. And so if you, uh, if you have your device and you want to follow along, you can look in John chapter 7. And uh, we, will be, we will be focused on those uh, first 12 or 13 verses this morning. If you remember, we're coming out of, of John 6, and John 6 all kind of like started with this great crowd that was there, and, and Jesus did this miracle of multiplying uh, a few loaves and fishes and, and distributed to a crowd of 20,000 people as much as they wanted. And out of that, there created then this enormous dialogue and interactions that happened throughout the rest of chapter 6 that kind of really culminated in Jesus making this claim about himself, that he was the bread of life. He said, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But unfortunately, as has been identified more than once in John, and we're going to actually see it today, he told you this, and he says, he said to, to, to those people that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Jesus, the bread of life, the one who, is, who has given his, his life for us, and John, again, just in that one chapter, goes to a great lengths to show us who he really is, and invite us to put our faith, to put our trust in him, to not be like those who do not believe, but instead to embrace it with belief. So we flip the chapter from chapter 6 to chapter 7. And we find in, in the first couple of verses of chapter 7 an interesting thing, uh, kind of dynamic being represented as John was inspired by God to kind of pick up the story right here. It says, after this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near. This is, we're going to learn a little bit more about this next week, but it's important for us to understand the significance of what's happening here, that, that, that the festival of booths, the, the feast of tabernacles, the festival of shelters, there's different way in which English translations represent it, is a, is a very important thing in the life of Israel. In fact, it's, the, it's really the high point. We, we really hear a little bit more about the Passover in the New Testament, but in, in Jesus' day, the high point for Israel was something known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths or Shelters. It lasted for seven days, and it happened on the 15th, month, uh, 15th day of a particular, a particular month, and typically it hits our calendar on or around September, October. I believe this year uh, the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles starts on September 20th. Oftentimes it's in October, but it's a little bit earlier this year. The, re- the purpose of this feast was to commemorate uh, to, uh, like the memory of, of the wandering of the, of the uh, Israelite population in the wilderness. They had been delivered from uh, Egypt, and the, the Passover is what commemorates that, that actual deliverance. But then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and this, this feast is a commemoration of that. And it's also a season of joy because it's connected uh, to the completion of the harvest and the vintage. 
And so there's a, there's a, it's a, a joyous, festive time. It's the, related to the fest, festival of ingatherings. And what would happen is you would have uh, booths that would be constructed everywhere all over Jerusalem. They would, you would find them on flat rooftops. You would find them in alleys. You would find them in uh, streets and squares. You would find them in neighborhood courts, and you would find them even in, t- in the temple court. These, these, uh, these, these uh, booths or these shelters, these temporary dwellings, they were, they were actually required to conform to the rabbinical code for construction. And there were a couple of important things. The walls, and now this is kind of a, a contemporary one that's a pretty elaborate one. I, I, some of them are really, really, really simple looking. This one's a little bit more elaborate. And as you can see, the walls have to allow light through them because it's a reminder as you see the light coming through the walls of their journeying throughout the wilderness. The roof also had to have uh, show enough sky so that you could see the stars. Again, that would be a, a, a reminder of God's continual provision of their wilderness wandering. But it truly was what was referred to by the Israelites as the season of their gladness. It was an amazing celebration. And in fact, it was, it was uh, probably one of the most well-attended festivals of the entire year. Number one was because, uh, kind of two reasons for that. Number one was, it was fun. You wanted to be there. It was an, an incredibly fun time. You just like, it was filled with celebration and food and, and you know, you constructed these shelters and you, you saw them all over the, all over the city in Jerusalem. It was, it was amazing. And secondly, not only did you want to be there, but you kind of had to be there. It was one of the three festivals that every male who lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem was required to attend. So if you wanted to be uh, a rule keeper, you were there, but also most people just wanted to be there because of the fun that it was. Maybe today we'd call it the Jerusalem Camping and RV Convention. I don't know exactly what we'd call it, but it was just a great time and it had a purpose of reminding them. So this Feast of the Booze is near. So his brothers, Jesus' brothers, we pick up the story then in verse 3, so his brothers say to him, hey, leave here, leave Galilee, and go to Judea so that your disciples can see the works that you are doing. They go on in verse 4 and 5 to say this, For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers, for not even his brothers, I'm sorry, believed in him. You see, his brother's advice does not spring from a sincere desire to advance or forward his mission. So in Jesus' own family, he has this kind of opposition. It's not really hostility, I wouldn't say, but there's probably a little bit of jealousy. There's probably a little bit of the the attitude, well, if you think you're all that, why don't you just go to Jerusalem at this big place and show yourself to be who everybody says you're going to be, who everybody says you are. Just, you know, put it all out there. Go ahead and do it. But they don't understand the agenda that Jesus has for his life. You see, in their minds, again, it makes perfect sense. No one does anything in secret if he's really seeking public recognition. And so if public recognition is what you're all about, Jesus, then you should go to the Feast of Booze and show everybody exactly who you are. But again, that what they're suggesting, what they're, what they're asking Jesus, what they're kind of implying, it, it doesn't come from this desire to, to forward or advance his mission. It's just they're a little bit in the, in the dark. 
So Jesus, as he deals with his family members who are giving him this little bit of a pressure, he's going to begin to teach them something that is a very key aspect to his life. And that is, he's not on calendar time, but he is on divine time. In 7.6, Jesus says, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. You see, Jesus is saying, your time, it is and has always been present. That's exactly what he's saying, because they had not been sent with the divine mission that Jesus had. They don't have that same sort of calling. They don't have that same sort of appointment. So they did things when and as it seemed right and good and convenient for them. So what does the calendar say that they should do? The calendar says that they should go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And so to Jesus, so to Jesus, they assume that he has that same outlook. But Jesus says, my time has not yet arrived. Now, those of you who have been around Calvary know that there's, an, there's a couple of uh, different ways, and I've, I've taught about it, a couple of different ways to look at time. And when Jesus says, my time has not yet arrived, he uses a, a very important word in the New Testament that's known as kairos. Kairos is time, but it's not time merely as a succession of moments. That's chronos. That's the yesterday, today, tomorrow. You know, it's 11.30 on Sunday, February 7, 2021. That's all chronological ways, a chronological perspective on time. But instead, kairos is, gives, uh, it, it implies that which time gives an opportunity in do, to do. Excuse me. It implies not the convenience of the season or what the calendar says, but the necessity of the task at hand. You see, Jesus is always about what is necessary to further his calling, regardless of what the calendar might say. And this, this calling that he has on his life, this kairos approach to his life, it, it, it is something that he embraces regardless if the time, the chronos, would make it seem either convenient or problematic. And so Jesus is, is helping them to understand that the time that I am on, and remember that, that John kind of set the stage because he says that there's, there's conflict around him, the Jews, which is a reference actually to the leadership. Any time you see John in, in John's gospel, the phrase the Jews, he's referring not just to the Jewish people in general, but most likely he's using it as a technical reference to the leadership of the Jews. And so we've seen that the Jews are, are out to kill Jesus. And so Jesus is saying to them, it is not the time for this. In this matters, in this, in this particular matter, his brothers are going to instead line up with the world and the way the world measures time and the way the world sees Jesus. So he goes on to say to them in verses 7 and 8, if you, if you check this out, he says, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. Why? Why should they go up to the festival? Because it's time to go to the festival. The calendar says it's time for the festival. It's time for the Feast of Booze. So why? They shouldn't stay here. There's nothing going on in their life that would cause them to not go. But in Jesus' life, there is. He's on a different calendar. Yes, the fe- it's not that he's saying that the Feast of Booze isn't important, but there's a different agenda for his life that they don't have. So he says, go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. Same word kairos is used there as well. In this matter, again, his brothers, Jesus' family, they line up the world with the world. The world can't hate them because they belong to it. 
They belong to the world. They don't belong, they, right, right? We understand they don't belong to Jesus. It identifies that they are people that have not yet believed in him. And so they belong to the world and they share in the world's inability to hear God's mission call in the same way that Jesus is, is hearing God's mission call. So when Jesus says, go up to the festival yourselves, it was the natural, normal, expected thing for them to do when Jesus says, go. But the world sees what I do. It hates me. The world doesn't share Jesus' love for sinners. The world doesn't share his heartbrokenness for what sin creates in people's lives. And I'm not in any way suggesting that Jesus founded call-out culture. I'm not saying that. But he does kind of call out the world and says that's part of what he does, right? He says, I, the world hates me because I testify about it. I testify about it that its works are evil, that everything that makes up the system of the world is evil. And guess what? We don't like to hear those things. And so when Jesus came speaking against everything in the system, both in, his, in, his, in the religious system of Judaism as well as the world at large, when he testifies about the evilness of that, well, no one really likes to hear that. And so what does it mean? It means that they hate him. The world is not prepared for the kind of self-sacrifice that's necessary that we see on the cross of Christ. It knows nothing of winning salvation by giving one's life for others. The world doesn't know about that. It can't understand that. It can't grasp that. So when Jesus is talking about who he is and from whom he's been sent and what he's here to do, well, how is the world going to respond? The world's going to respond with hate. The world is opposed to Jesus both because of who he says he is and what he says he's there to do. But brothers, go on up. Go up to the feast. And so his family that has this, this misunderstanding, this lack of belief, Jesus uses that as an, oppor- uh, as an opportunity to help them to understand the difference between their understanding of time and his understanding of time. Their understanding of opportunity and his understanding of opportunity because his time had not yet fully come. That word that we translate in the phrase that fully come is is the Greek word plerao. It literally means to cram a net or to level up a hollow. And so figuratively it means to make full, to complete, to fill up to the top, to fill up to the brim. It It means to make complete in every particular aspect. And Jesus is saying at this point, for me to go to Jerusalem in the manner that you're asking me to go, to do the things that you're asking me to do, it is not the time for me to do that. Because understanding that as Jesus goes and, and eventually as he meets his death, there are a lot of things that need to transpire in the life of Jesus before he does embrace that call of self-sacrifice on the cross. And so Jesus is saying, it's not time. It, my, my life hasn't been filled up to the point where that time is right. It's the, the, the divine time, the appointed time, the set time, the right time, the opportune time for me to go and do that. So he encourages his brothers to go up. And then a, kind of an interesting thing happens in verse 9 and 10. After he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up. <laughs> Open, not openly, but secretly. So now, what's Jesus doing here? You're like, now wait a second. Did Jesus tell a little lot of like half-truth to his brothers there? That they should go out? He, he, he just 
Uh, he never said actually specifically that he wasn't going to go up. It just he made all these references, right, to about his time and how his time, this kairos, this moment was not the right moment and the time had not been filled up to the point that he would do that. So he is not going up in the manner that they want him to go up. Remember, what did they say? Go up and show yourself. You want public recognition? Do all these things, you know, out here in this bit, on this big stage so people can see who you really are. And he's like, I'm not going up like that. So instead, he goes up not openly, not in the way that they had asked him to go up, but he instead goes up secretly. And when he gets there, there's some other reactions. So we've seen how his family reacted, right? And now we have the power brokers. Remember, the power brokers in verse 1, we saw that the Jews, the leadership of the Jewish people, they were trying to kill him. And so in verse 11, as John moves the story along, and now Jesus is there, but no one really knows he's there. And now, why had Jesus traveled alone? He went alone so he wouldn't be recognized. And so he didn't go in the caravan. Most likely his family would have gone in a big caravan. There would have been a, they traveled kind of in caravans to Jerusalem when they would go for these festivals. It was all just part of the party, you know. And so Jesus is kind of just going up by himself, staying in the shadows. And while, while he's there, but John is commenting on what's happening at the feast, we see in verse 11 that the Jews, again, those people who were trying to kill him, they were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? They're trying to end him because, again, why are they trying to end him? Because in their minds, we've already seen John make this point clear. In their minds, there is no way that this man is from God. He can't be the one that gives us living water. He can't be the bread of life. This guy said that unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood, then we can't be part of God's kingdom. Well, that's craziness. And that's offensive. And so we want, what do we want to do? We want to eliminate him altogether. So it's clear that the power brokers just want to eliminate Jesus. His family doesn't really understand what's going on here. Again, they're just kind of blind to it. The power brokers are blind to it as well, but they're much more hostile. Jesus' brothers weren't as much hostile to him as they were just probably a little bit jealous. And again, he was very misunderstood by them. So we have these two, yeah, both of them being negative reactions, but very different reactions from his family and then these power brokers. And then, of course, in addition to the, the leadership of the Jews and his own family, we also have Jane and John Q. Public, right? Just the ordinary, everyday people. This is probably not referring to Jesus' disciples. It's not referring to the leaders. It's just from the, all the pilgrims that had come to Jerusalem from a variety of places. And what does it say about them? Well, just as in verse 6 we saw, or chapter 6, we saw a lot of this, and there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Many of these people probably had never heard Jesus in person, like firsthand. They maybe had never heard him teach. Many of them probably had never seen him, but they had heard about him from others. And you know how stories go, right? So there probably were people that were there that had heard about what had happened when he fed the 20,000 people, that had heard the rumor that he had walked on water, that had heard him talk about, uh, heard the rumor of, of him saying something about being the bread of life, about this comment that he made to a Samaritan woman and why would he stay in that Samaritan village for three days anyway. So all of this stuff was circling around and there was a lot of murmuring, right? We learned that word. We learned that this is a, a variant of that word. Uh, it's called uh, gangudsmos. 
It's a, a grumbling, a muttering, a, a murmuring. It can mean a secret debate, and that's what's happening. There's a secret debate going on among the people. And what's the debate? Well, just like a lot of people think of Jesus this way today too, right? This is what, this is what the public was saying. Some were saying, he's a good man. I mean, I heard what he did. I, I, heard, I heard what he, I, my friend told him was at that place and, and saw what he did with those 20,000 people. And others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. There's some probably, again, some people who are like, my rabbi said to me that there's no way that this guy comes from God. There's absolutely no way that this could be the Messiah, the, the one that we're waiting on. There's abs- that just doesn't make sense. So when you think about it, again, note that still nobody was talking publicly about him. Because <laughs> they're all afraid of the, of the power brokers. They're all afraid of the Jews. There's lots of interest in Jesus. There's lots of curiosity. There's lots of this secret debating going on, right, out in the crowds. But no, not much open dialogue. Not much out in the open because, again, because they're afraid of what, what might happen if they get the answer wrong. So they have these opinions, but they're kind of sharing it a little bit on the down low. Some think he's good. Some think he's deceiving the people. Now, as I was thinking about this whole story, like, what's the takeaway? Why, why did God inspire John to, tell, to give us these first 13 verses of chapter 7? Specifically, what's, what's the takeaway for us? And I began to then understand that the longer I lived with this passage, the more I studied it, I thought, well, you know, this is exactly how the followers of Jesus are seen as well. Sometimes there might be people who, they love you, they care for you, they're your family members. You love them. But they don't quite get this whole thing of what you mean that your life now is centered in and completely consumed by Jesus himself. They don't believe and so they don't understand. They don't understand why sometimes you make decisions that don't make sense to them. Like, Jesus brothers, time to go to the feast. Jesus is like, well, it's not my time to go to the feast. Sometimes you make decisions about the way you use your time, about the way you use your money, about the way you use opportunity that doesn't make sense maybe to your family because they don't understand what it means to have a life that has been completely turned upside down, inside out, and rearranged by the person of Jesus himself. So you're going to have some people who react to you. If you are a committed follower of Jesus, there are going to be some people who react to you just like Jesus' brothers reacted to him. And then... You know what? Sometimes in the church, and when I say church, I'm going to just say not in the body of Christ, but in sometimes in the organized church, sometimes in the, in, the, in the little seed church, you know, not the official body of Christ, but the organization of the church. Sometimes when people get a little bit too fanatic, get a little bit too radical, get a little bit too committed to walking in the way of Jesus, it actually threatens the power brokers as well, even today. And then out in the public, right? Got people saying all sorts of things about Jesus. Maybe he's good, take a little bit of that. He's a deceiver. There's no way that this is nonsense, right? It's foolishness. So out in the, in, the, in the public arena, there's in the public forum, there's all sorts of opinions and discussion about Jesus that may not be as secret as it was in Jesus' day. But it, 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 it kind of caused me to think that we live in this very same reality today that Jesus did. 
There's a mass of people who don't really know what he is, but they have an opinion, or who he is, but they have an opinion about it. There's some power brokers who are threatened because sometimes, sometimes a deeply committed follower of Jesus can actually be more of a threat to the system of religion because the system of religion is all about maintenance. It's all about, it's all about control. And a life in Jesus is all about freedom to pursue the, what, the, what the Holy Spirit, you know, how the Holy Spirit leads us as we align with the Word, with the, uh, with the Word and will of God and with the person of Jesus. And then, again, even in our own family, there are going to be times when we're misunderstood and doesn't make sense to people why we're doing a particular thing because it seems like it's foolishness. Just like Jesus, we are on mission. Our lives are not driven by opinion. Our lives are not driven by the calendar. Our lives are not driven by people who sometimes don't have the things of God in, in, in mind, in interest, even if they happen to be powerful people in our community or even church. Our lives are on mission that is rooted in the word and in the will and in the power of God himself. And that means there are times when we are going to seem like aliens, like crazy people, like weirdos. Because it's not the way the world lives their life. And so, just like they hated Jesus, they'll hate us. Or you can avoid all that and just be like them, and then they won't hate you. Will you receive and embrace and accept and commit to the divine mission that God has for your life? Or will you settle into something else, the path of least resistance? Going along so you can get along. Or living that alternative way. Living against the grain. Living the Jesus way. I pray that each of us individually and that we as a community of faith collectively embrace that road less traveled, that narrow path, that way of the cross, that way of discipleship. That's what our Savior did, and that's what he's called from each of us. Regardless of how our family, those in power, or John Q. and Jane Q. public think, we follow him. His will, not ours. Would you stand with me as we pray? After I'm done praying, the worship team will lead us in a closing song. Bow your heads if you would. Father God, we come to you thanking you for the heart that Jesus has. The heart that would not be dissuaded by anyone whether it was his own family members, whether it was the people who were in, 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 in charge that were in power, in, those religious leaders in his day, certainly not public opinion. He would not be swayed from his mission. And I pray, God, that in some way, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would fill us with that same level of resolve to walk after the will of you and you alone. That will not be easy, God. 
I don't think hate is too strong a word to use, that we will experience sometimes that very thing. But God, we pray. We pray that we would deepen our understanding of who Jesus really is, of his calling on our life, and that we would surrender to that very thing. Not doing that in our own strength, but instead by the power of your Holy Spirit in accordance with what your word declares. We surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.